Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 21. Chapter 21. No Chance of Drowning. No man will be a sailor who has contrivance enough to get himself into a jail, for being in a ship is being in a jail with the chance of being drowned. A quote from Samuel Johnson. On our arrival in New York, the ship's treasurer reported a total of one and a half dollars in the kitty. The remains of the proceeds of another article sold during the latter stages of our trip up the coast. So our first duty when we arrived was to plunder the ship's mail in search of the money for which we were hoping. Fortunately, that search was successful, and once again we were able to eat, even if not very sumptuously. We had thought that our arrival in New York, city of perpetual emotion, was as unobtrusive as it could be, but on the following morning we went through our ordeal by camera, and for more than an hour we stood or sat, posed and smiled, and waved. Couldn't we pose without waving our arms in the air? we asked. A little tremor of incredulity and horror rippled through the camera brigade. Nobody in New York wanted to see a photograph of a new arrival who was not waving, they replied. Well, what were we waving at? Why, nothing. Just waving. So we all just waved. All that is except Swizzle, for he had his own contribution to make. We were sitting down with him among us, while a photographer went through a Swedish drill routine, trying to line us up with a skyscraper in the background. This was apparently to prove to a sceptical world that we were in New York itself. At the critical moment, Swizzle turned and licked my face. A sign of ecstasy came from the other cameramen. They too had to have a photograph in which my face was being licked. We did our best to explain the situation to Swizzle in rational terms, but without result. We pushed and prodded him and whistled and barked at him, but no sign of a tongue. Sometimes he would just turn his head and a dozen cameras jumped to the alert, only to come slowly down again as he turned away. But it happened at last, a magnificent lick, which was duly recorded and stored away in a dozen archives. With these preliminaries over, we took content out to City Island and began to make arrangements for leaving her there for the winter. This kept us very busy, but we tried to see something of New York, meanwhile. Names such as Broadway, Fifth Avenue and Times Square were almost as well known to us as the Strand, Oxford Street and Piccadilly, and with the geometric pattern of New York's layout, which we greatly admired, I soon knew my way about the city far better than about London. In the initial stages, I carried a pocket compass with me for use in an emergency when the sun was too obscured to indicate north and south. Though the Caribbean cruise in Evening Star had to be cancelled, Jack had very kindly suggested that we stay aboard her for a while so that we would have time to work on our book until the passing of the winter enabled us to return north and work on content. We remained aboard Evening Star for several months till, towards the end of our stay there, Don and I were invited by a friend to sail his yacht down the waterways to Florida. He himself would accompany us for the first day and would then meet us on our arrival in Miami. The prospect of sailing in pursuit of the sun was entrancing, but unfortunately something happened to the weather. Our passage to the south was a period of early starts in frozen dawns and late stops in misty anchorages. We arrived at Daytona Beach in Florida with icicles hanging from the spreaders and a sheathing of ice on all our rigging, and found that a snowfall earlier that day had caused endless excitement amongst the population and despair in the Chamber of Commerce. But we enjoyed it, nevertheless, 
for the fleeting glimpse it gave us again of the waterways and for the opportunity of handling such a pretty little ship as mistress. In due course, Don and I boarded the bus which would take us back to Moorhead City. California suffers a constant bombardment of vagrant souls from the countries bordering the Caribbean and consequently has to maintain a particularly vigilant watch. Immigration officers stand guard at railroad and bus stations and are constantly on the alert. We were still in Florida when our bus paused at a station and Don and I alighted to stretch our legs. A border patrolman was making a routine check of all passengers and called us over. We handed him our papers. The scowl on his face deepened. Something was clearly wrong, though we had no idea what it was. Immigration had always been something of a puzzle to us. We had supplied the authorities with some attractive sets of fingerprints and on six separate occasions had been to their offices for information about our status, but the word yachtsman had produced much the same reaction as the word work on content. A moment of shock followed by mental paralysis and we were passed on to the next group or back to the last one. On this occasion, the patrolman was clearly most unhappy. We took our baggage off the bus and were taken to the main office for questioning. There, we recounted our various moves up the coast and related how we had applied for an additional extension, had been told to wait until we reached New York, and on arrival there, had been threatened with proceedings for not having applied at the original place. The person whom we were interviewing in New York then told us that he did not know what we were supposed to do anyway, and suggested that we start again and apply back to Miami. This was, we supposed, a reasonable suggestion since it was in a sense Miami's turn again and that would complete the circle. When the story was written down, Don and I were wondering which bus we would be able to catch for the North. The official voice cut into our deliberations. Of course, it was saying, we shall have to have a more detailed statement tomorrow. This is only so that we can hold you tonight. Oh. The jail had only recently celebrated its opening and was clean and modern. The jailer performed certain mystic rites with keys and chromium levers and a large metal door swung open in front of us and then clanged shut behind. Don and I, feeling very much like new boys on their first day at school, found ourselves in a large room fringed with bars. One half was occupied by eight cells with individual sliding gates and a barred passage outside them. In each cell were four bunks, a wash basin and a lavatory. The rest of the room formed an enclosure area, opening off the passage with metal tables and benches and two showers. This was the bullpen. Twenty or thirty faces turned to watch our entry. Two youths who had just completed a year's study in a reform school came in with us. We were allotted a cell, met our cellmates and stowed what belongings we had with us. A few minutes later, there was a general shout of court among our companions and everyone, including ourselves, gathered at one end of the pen. We then witnessed our first kangaroo court with ourselves as defendants. The court, which is forbidden in some jails, is a method the prisoners have for establishing a common fund for the purchase of small luxuries for the block. It provides the members with tobacco from which to roll cigarettes, milk and sugar for the coffee which is served with meals, stationery and stamps and anything else it might be able to afford. The judge of the court is the boss of the block and holds his position by mutual consent because he is either the most experienced of the prisoners or the toughest. Other officials are elected. The speaker rose to address us. 
He was a nice-looking fellow with blonde wavy hair and spoke excellently. You are charged, he began, with breaking in here without permission. Guilty or not guilty? Uh, guilty, we replied. Okay, the fine is two dollars each. How are you fixed to pay your fine? We had left most of our fortune in the office downstairs, but we laid what we had on the table. A member counted it. How much is there? asked the judge. Three dollars twenty cents, Johnny. Take two thirds and give the rest back, said Johnny. There was obviously disappointment at the meagerness of the hall. They had expected better of us, but Jerry, the speaker, said a few words in our defence. They look a clean-cut pair of young fellows, he said, so I don't suggest that we search them. After all, you can't always tell a book by its cover. He then went on to other matters. Apparently there had been a theft of money from one of the members, and Jerry made a very good plea for honour among thieves. It was announced by the court that if the money were not returned by a certain time, there would be a search. A society whose members visited the jail had distributed a large number of calendars with religious text on each page. One of the calendars was now given to each man, and a bag was put on the table. By a certain time, all the calendars were to be placed in that bag, and the thief could slip the money between the pages so that his identity could not be discovered. Though the court assembled again to watch the counting of the calendars, no money was found, and a thorough search by two court officials of each of the eight cells in the block produced nothing. I think I know why. Don and I were summoned to the office the next morning for several hours' interrogation. Though our questioners were pleasant enough, it was a wearisome business. Only one man, apparently in charge of the department, seemed determined to pin something on us. At the end of the questioning, he told us bluntly that we were lawbreakers. We asked him why. You admit you have written articles? Certainly, we replied. Yet you know you are forbidden to take employment in the United States. We know, I said, that we are not allowed to take regular employment, but we took particular care to ask officialdom several times whether freelance writing was permissible. In every case, they said that it was. Well, it's not. Half an hour ago in this office, I asked one of the gentlemen who had been pointed out as a specialist in immigration law whether it was permissible for us to earn money in this way. He assured us that it was. He changed his ground. Now, you say that you came down to Miami on an American yacht. As aliens, you are not allowed to work on coastwise shipping. I was glad our friend was not there to hear his lovely little yacht described as coastwise shipping. There was no question of employment, I said. We are friends of his. What about your own yacht? Who paid you your wages on that? The man was obviously so hopelessly out of his depth that I was almost beginning to enjoy it. Unfortunately, I replied very seriously, our wages are very small. You see, we pay them ourselves. Then on board this American yacht, your food was provided for you? I tried to explain it as simply as I could. We were invited aboard as guests and it is customary to provide a guest on board with food. It keeps up his strength so that he can work. Had we been invited to a friend's house instead, I feel confident that he would not have asked us to pay for any meals consumed there. Oh, well, said the man casually, we are not making an issue out of that anyway, so it doesn't matter. My self-control astonished me. Perhaps Don's calming influence had something to do with it, but I did nothing except tighten my grip on my chair. I did not even cross the room and gouge the fellow's eyes out. Sir, I replied as gently as I could, it may not matter to you, but I assure you, that it matters a great deal to us. He abandoned the effort then and informed us instead that we would have to be held while our story was being checked and that it would probably take about four or five days. 
we were becoming used to being driven to and from the jail. There was only one time when we were at all embarrassed. Our escort allowed us to go into a drugstore for something to eat before returning to the jail. But while we were eating, we could not quite forget the khaki-clad figure who stood with folded arms in the shop behind us, and we were amused to see the curious glances which slid towards us as we ate. We received a great welcome when we returned to the fold and once again inhabited our old cell. We were greeted with smiles and anxious questions and clucks of sympathy. In ones and twos, the inmates would come round to our cell to hear our story, as they did everyone's, and discuss its technical aspects, displaying, in some cases, a profound knowledge of the law which could only have been acquired by living outside it for long periods. Don and I made very many good friends. Life was certainly leisurely, for the prisoners were left to their own devices from the opening of the cell doors at half-past six in the morning to their closing at eleven o'clock at night. There were a few magazines and books to read, and there was always card games for those who wished. The official ruling was that gambling on a small scale was permitted, but cheating was not. We tried to take a little exercise every day by pacing up and down the pen, 18 paces each way, I remember, and Don and I took the opportunity of catching up with our correspondence at last. We made a particular point of writing to our friends at home and putting the jail address in clear letters on the outside of the envelope. It was a pleasant enough existence in many ways, and I certainly never began to feel bored. It was only for the first few nights, when one heard the remote-controlled gate rumbled across the cell front and closed with an emphatic clang, that one caught the feeling of being shut in. The food held body and soul together by acting as a sort of cement rather than by its nutritional value, and we would willingly have exchanged it for some of the corned beef and potatoes on content. Early in the morning, shortly after the cell gates had grumbled open, we took our mugs to the little hatch and had them filled with a brown liquid, without milk or sugar, which I heard referred to as coffee by the more imaginative of our companions in crime. Half an hour later, breakfast followed. It usually consisted of grits, which can be quite pleasant, I understand, for those who like that type of thing, but which loses whatever glamour it may have possessed when it glimmers through a greasy layer of cold gravy. We therefore relied upon the three rolls which formed the rest of the meal, for, though some of the people found them too solid to swallow, they seemed to me to be quite palatable after ship's biscuits. Midday brought lunch of vegetable hash with horse meat on Sundays, and three more obdurate rolls. The vegetables consisted of every variety of bean I had ever seen before, and of many which I had not. Sometimes they were mercifully screened by a layer of gravy. The rest of the prisoners had no more food for the rest of the day, apart from another cup of coffee in the evening, but we and two others enjoyed the distinction of being classed as federal prisoners and received an evening meal similar to or sometimes better than lunch. It always impressed me that there was never a murmur when we went to the hatch to collect our supper and ate it in front of those who had none. I began to appreciate some of the disadvantages of the modern educational system, for I found a variety of subjects on which I was woefully ignorant. The technical side of the distilling of illicit whiskey had hitherto been a closed book to me, and my knowledge of its smuggling over state borders had been quite superficial. I was ashamed to find, though comforted to realise that there were others like me, that I had not the least idea of how to set about starting a car without an ignition key, without touching the wiring, without leaving the driver's seat, and with only a piece of chewing gum to help me, yet the method was ridiculously simple. 
Again, perhaps I shall owe the retention of my fortune some day to the demonstration of card sharping which my friend Jerry provided for my benefit. It was really beautiful in the sense that anything when done by an expert acquires beauty. I only hope that he follows my suggestions of publishing an educational booklet entitled The Sixth Finger or Poker for Profit. After four or five days had rolled by with no news of progress on our case, we were worried at first but soon resigned ourselves to a longer stay than we had anticipated. We had become accepted members of the fraternity, had welcomed one or two newcomers with court trials and had said goodbye to a few who had graduated. The days passed quickly enough, at any rate, in gossiping in other people's cells, in reading and even writing. At night, we had the choice of listening to the two members of the block who were seriously troubled with asthma, or of pretending to listen to the endless boring accounts of the amorous adventures of our travelling salesman cellmate. It was at this time that an internal crisis over financial matters developed in the block. It had always been accepted that the judge of the kangaroo court should levy a small toll from the kitty for his services, but apparently this cut had recently been as high as 80%. The indignation of the members was aroused by this hint of sharp practice and court was called. The sheriff was the principal speaker for the opposition and the debate dragged on. The course of the discussion was rendered more devious by the judge's announcement that, by a maddening coincidence, the accounts had mysteriously disappeared that very morning. I stood up at the end of it and did my best to summarise the arguments. Johnny, a thick-set young man whose badge of office was a service cap and a broom-handled scepter, was a good judge, for he knew the ropes and had useful contacts. On the other hand, people were worried about the finances, so why not have Johnny as judge and elect a separate treasurer? This was eventually agreed to, and a treasurer chosen. The unexpected twist was that the new treasurer was myself. I had been treasurer on committees before, but never on one such as this, and I was delighted with my new job. Among other things, it gave me the opportunity of knowing all the inmates. The majority of the people in there were there, directly or indirectly, as a result of alcohol. There was old Walter, who had been addicted to it all his life, and who had wanted to be locked up like this in the hope that it might cure him. Tennessee, too, was there as a result of a too vigorous celebration. He was an amazing character, the only man there who could always eat all the food and then start on what had been left over by the others, yet he was constantly pleading for pills from the jailer. He must have consumed vast quantities of them. On the day he was released, they searched him on the way out. Two cakes of prison soap were found hidden among his belongings. Of course, some of them were in for other offences, some to serve their few months in the jail, others to go to penitentiary. Young Tom was a good example of a person who had made a mistake but was never likely to do so again. He was in for grand larceny, but was a person I would have trusted before most others. He was fond of reading and writing poetry, and we had many a discussion on it. Tex was our first contact with the state of Texas, but he could not, we were assured, be a genuine native of the state because... He don't fight when you call him a goddamn liar. Shorty was my favourite character, with his cheerful, wrinkled face. He was always happy-go-lucky and a very astute observer of everything that went on in the block. He reckoned that he had been in jail more than a hundred times, but only once for longer than a weekend. Nothing dishonest, he assured me, only for operating a six-bag whiskey still. If a drunk had come in for the weekend and someone had rolled him for his money while he lay unconscious on his bunk, Shorty would be able to tell me who had done it. These weekend drunks were a godsend to me in my efforts to build up the court's finances. 
if they could pay their fines. The newcomer would lay down his fine at the court session and Johnny would pick it up and solemnly hand it across to me in full view of everyone and I would then read a statement of the accounts. If we thought that the kitty could stand it, we dealt out mugs of cocoa in the evenings and any newcomer was entitled to his share whether he had been able to pay his fine or not. I had always hoped that the practice in haircutting which I had obtained on content would one day come in useful and here at last it did for I became barber for the block, and on the day before court day, there was a queue of clients waiting to be spruced up. After ten days, news came that we were to be transferred to Miami for our hearing, so we said goodbye to our friends, collected our baggage, and climbed into the police van, which was to take us south. Moving to Miami was jumping out of a tolerable frying pan and into an intolerable fire, for we found that our hearing would not be held for several days. In Miami jail, it was apparently the practice to separate federal from state prisoners, but the federal section being full, they had to put Don and me with the state. But this must have still worried them, for they decided that at all costs we must be separated in some way and solve the problem by locking us in our cell. The jail was drab and dirty, and each cell held eight people. We were sharing hours with six other immigration cases who arrived on the same day. There were five Mexicans and one French-Canadian, none of whom spoke English. Our cell measured 12 and a half feet by 7, and for more than four days the eight of us lived and ate and slept in it. There was room to sit or lie on the one's bunk or to stand by it, but no more, and we looked enviously through the bars at the other prisoners walking about the bullpen. As we could not move about, there was no need for a large quantity of food, but the quality fell a little short of what we had imagined when thinking about wintering in Miami. Three slices of plain bread formed part of each meal, and these we saved to be eaten separately as a delicacy after stomaching whatever part of the main course we could manage. There seemed to be far less spirit in this place than in our last, and though we made some friends there, talking through the bars, our usual contact with the other prisoners was made when they brought clothes or candy round to sell to the Mexicans. At the weekend, a party of evangelists came to preach and conduct hymn singing, for which I greatly admired them, Everyone was invited out into the pen to take part, and seeing that we were still in our cell, the leader extended the invitation to us in particular. One of the other prisoners leaned across and explained that we were locked in. The worthy gentleman, obviously sure that he was dealing with a group of particularly vicious criminals, looked sorrowfully in our direction, pained at the thought of our straying so far from the path, and addressed the most persuasive passages in his sermon to us in particular. I saw him looking at Don, who was lying with his head close to the bars. Ah, he was saying, I see some very young faces in there. An encouraging letter came from the consul, and in due course the day came for our hearing. It was an informal affair with a pleasant man in shirt sleeves. The general attitude towards us had changed considerably. Our consul had been good enough to vouch for us, and everyone was gradually adopting the opinion that we were really not very dangerous after all. A few hours later, it was decided that, though our papers were not technically quite in order, we had acted in good faith and that perhaps the fault was not entirely ours. With considerable relief, Don and I learned that we would not have to return to the black hole of Miami jail. We collected our belongings, bundled them into a police car and were driven to the bus station, free again. Our only concrete loss was the bus fare from Miami to the point at which we had been arrested, for which we had not been able to obtain reimbursement, and we did not really regret our experience. A few adverse winds add spice to a passage. While awaiting a bus to the north, 
Don and I strolled out to the Miami waterfront, but that was about the limit of our endurance. We found ourselves too weak to do more than sit on a bench and look across Biscayne Bay, sparkling in the sunshine of the late afternoon. It looked very inviting. On our way north, we reported to the head of the immigration service for the area, a most helpful individual with whom we parted on the best of terms. The authorities had been lenient and allowed us two months in which to prepare to leave the country, so we called at Moorhead City to collect our gear and hastened to New York to join Ernest on content. Swizzle too had been having adventures. While Don and I were doing time in Florida, he had been on Evening Star with our friend, the captain. A troop transport ship, bound it was said for Korea, had come into the port and Swizzle had developed the habit of daily visits to the ship's galley where he knew that food was plentiful and hearts were soft. But one day, the ship sailed and Swizzle was never seen again. Either he had been drafted or he had been caught unawares while trying to consume the maximum amount of food in the minimum time. Friends of ours later reported seeing a newsreel of troops landing in Korea and swore that they had recognised Swizzle. If that be so, the United Nations have enlisted the aid of a new and powerful ally and their future is in safe pause. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.